Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Finn Harper from Open City. This episode of The Lundown is dedicated to the memory of Marcus Fares, the brilliant journalist, editor, and innovator who tragically passed away this week. Marcus was an exceptional force within the industry, often light years ahead of his peers and constantly rethinking the fundamentals of architectural journalism, criticism and public discourse. He was a shrewd and prolific figure who will be deeply missed. It's hard to think this show would be the same without responding to the kind of work that Marcus was producing at Dezine and before that elsewhere. In founding his most ambitious publishing project, Dezine, in 2006, Marcus correctly judged with incredible acumen and foresight the shape that journalism would take in the 21st century. Many publishers are still struggling to catch up with the moves that Marcus made nearly two decades ago. He had an exceptionally quick sense for news, sometimes breaking big stories off the back of noticing a passing remark at an event or online. And while Zine is best known for unrivaled visual coverage of contemporary design, Marcus also made it an inclusive space for vigorous debate, platforming all sides of any issue, including many underrepresented voices. Marcus was also a stalwart and supportive champion of Open City, At the start of the UK's first national lockdown, he met with me in person in an open-air Dalston car park to ask how Dezine could help us get through the pandemic. With his blessing, Dezine went on to support our work in various ways, including by prominently featuring the graduation work of the black, brown and working-class teenagers who take part in Open City's Accelerate programme each year. In doing so, he gave those underrepresented Londoners a spotlight and a confidence boost that they are often denied. It was a gesture which will have certainly changed lives for the better. Marcus led with flair, quick thinking and a twinkle in his eye. We will remember those qualities when we will remember him. Damning report warns the UK is already failing its own net zero targets. Census reveals London hollowing out of the city centre. Star Architects DRMM parachuted in for a landmark study to boost timber construction. And conservationists are celebrating victory in the battle to save London's former city hall from demolition. My name is Finn Harper, I'm an architecture critic, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the London. My guests this week here in Bureau, uh, in North Greenwich's design district, are Smith Mordack and Richard Ellis. Smith is Director of Sustainability and Physics at the Integrated Consulting Engineers and Advisors Practice Bureau Haphold, and Richard is Director of Sustainability at the Housing Association Peabody. Welcome both to the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. This Lundown is an Open City Stewardship Awards special and is actually supported by Peabody, um, so we created 
the Stewardship Awards in order to better recognise the value of outstanding maintenance care and adaptation of urban neighbourhoods. The full shortlist of those awards will be featured in this year's Open House Festival, which is running from the 8th to the 21st of September. And the winners will be announced at a special event at Peabody's Nest in Thamesmead on the 13th of September. Tonight, though, we're simply going to be looking at the big news stories that have broken in London's built environment world over the last seven days through the lens of stewardship and ecological construction. And our first story is that the UK is falling short of crucial targets to meet its net zero promises due to the government dragging its heels on key policies. That's according to a damning report by the Climate Change Committee. So the CCC is the independent statutory body uh, which is assigned to advise Parliament on climate policy. And it revealed its discontent at the government's, quote, shocking insulation programme in its annual report to MPs last week. In what was a no-holds-barred document, uh, they noted, quote, major policy failures and a scant evidence of delivery. Uh, it took the top billing in Newsnight last week, which featured an interview with CCC Chief Executive Chris Stark. As host of COP26 last year, the UK was praised for its ambitious climate goals. However, this latest report seems to indicate that the government is falling dangerously far behind on legally binding promises. In particular, the cost of living crisis seems to have been used by the government to draw back on its commitments to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Uh, for example, in the past few months, the former Chancellor Rishi Sunak has slashed fuel duty and also British coal-fired power stations have been given operating extensions with the Ukraine invasion cited as a justification. Nevertheless, it was the government's insulation policy that was singled out for the biggest criticism from the CCC. With the draftiest homes in Europe, the UK's heating costs are crippling families and proving one of the largest single sources of carbon emissions. The committee's chair, Lord Deben, said it was, quote, scandalous that we are still building new homes that do not meet minimum standards of efficiency, meaning that soon 1.5 million brand new homes will need significant retrofitting. So, Smith, what is the significance of this report why, in your view? Why? Why are we in the situation where, despite decades of warnings and promises to change, we still have a government offering, according to this report, scant evidence of delivery when it comes to decarbonisation? Well, it's great that this report has come out and it's great that this report is as kind of blunt in its reporting of, of the situation as it is. But I wasn't in the least bit surprised. I mean, we know this, right? <laughs> we, we've been going on about this for ages, that there's a massive gap between the government's targets and the actual action and policy that's being put in place to you know, give us any chance of meeting those targets. Um, and so I suppose this report, in a way, just um, validates that for, to a wider audience. Um, so great. Thank you, CCC, for that. Um, but like, as to why we're in this situation, I mean... My latest feeling about it is that I think while we've agreed collectively on the symptom, on the climate change, we see that climate change is happening, we see that the biodiversity crisis is happening, um, but what we don't agree on is the causes for that, the underlying causes for that. Like, yes, we agree that kind of emissions are causing global warming, but we don't agree that, you know, the kind of fundamental economic models, the extractivism, the <clears throat> capitalism, am I allowed to say capitalism on this podcast? Um, like, are, are what are driving it? And because we don't agree on the causes, we don't have a kind of a unified idea as to what we could do to solve it. 
Um, and so at the moment, it feels like we're in this situation of like the government saying, yes, I, I understand that you've got lung cancer and yes, I will absolutely treat it, but only if I can do that by selling you cigarettes. Um, <laughs> it's just like, and it's, it's so infuriating. We need to get past this to like a slightly more sophisticated understanding of like what's driving this, what's driving the, you know, the, the climate crisis, but also all of the social problems that we're suffering as well that are all caused by those same underlying economic problems. Yeah, it, really, it sort of seems that the, the government is kind of prioritising, um, well, it's pitting the cost of living crisis and these kind of social issues against environmental issues and bringing uh, our emissions down. Um, you know, we've we, 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 we've seen this over the last few weeks. The, the ministers have said, oh, you know, we, can, we can't do both of these things. You can either, we can either take um, affirmative action to support people during the cost of living crisis, or we can um, reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, in your opinion, is is this a, a, a are these two issues mutually exclusive? Is that a fair uh, conclusion to come to, uh, or is that a kind of myth? And actually, savvy policymakers could both address household bills and also save the planet at the same time. Social issues and ecological issues in one go. Yeah, I mean, I think it's total nonsense to put those two things against each other. I think they're both symptoms of the same underlying kind of drivers and causes, which is to do with, you know, opportunities for financial extraction and concentration of wealth and so on. And like the, to, to put them against each other is just completely false. And it drives me absolutely up the wall that, um, yeah, that we're sort of being sold certain policies um, and in order to meet these other needs. And it's just it's t it's total nonsense. Richard, London Mayor Sadiq Khan recently published an opinion piece in City AM calling for citywide divestment from fossil fuels. And he said in it, quote, uh, despite the rhetoric to build back better following the pandemic, as little as 6% of stimulus spending globally has so far gone into green economy initiatives. Um, you know, you're leading a green economy initiative, right? You're head of sustainability at Peabody, major long-term landowner and housing association. What do you think this city needs to do to lead the way to a greener future? Uh, that's a very big and complicated question, but I would say in short that we need to look long term. An awful lot of the policies that you see and the disconnect that we see between central government, local government is around short termism. And one of the things that makes me work, work for Peabody um, and like it so much is that we've been around for 160 years. Our plan is to be around for another 160 years and only through long-term planning, working with our communities, living with them and developing them, are we ever going to get to a greener future. And it's something that we've been working on for the last few years quite heavily. We are developing now uh, new build sites which are community-led. And, we, and they sit within the community. If I was going to say to anything to any of the policymakers or anybody who's in those positions that can really pull the levers, is look long term. We're not going to solve this by taking short term and shortcuts. That's not possible. Our second story is all about long term change or long term trends, uh, particularly in, in communities. I'd be really interested in your take on this. Um, it is the shocking collapse of central London's residential population that has been revealed by the, the very preliminary results from the 2021 census, despite um, rising house prices. So um, 
the first results of the 2021 census have just been released, and they show that the UK uh, has grown, largest population ever recorded for the UK, overall increase of more than 3.5 million people here. Uh, in the capital, Tower Hamlets has increased its population by more than a fifth, you know, big big percentage increase, largest of any London borough, and the city as a whole has grown by more than 600,000 people over that over that last decade since we did a, a, a census in 2011. What is interesting, though, is that not everywhere in London is experiencing the same growth of the popula of population. In fact, three central London boroughs have shown a sharp decline in population. Camden, Westminster and Kensington and Chelsea each shrank by 4.6, 6.9 and 9.6 percent, respectively. I'm calling it a shocking result because Londoners are often told that the affordability crisis that makes it so hard to live here and is most acute in the city centre is a sort of inevitable economic consequence of so many people who want, want, want to live here, want to move here and live here. But this census result seems to paint a different picture. It suggests that rising prices continue to rise even as populations fall, even as demand in the centre falls. So, you know, the, the rest of the census findings uh, are, are going to be released later over, over two years on ethnicity and, and, and religion and the labour market, education and so on and so forth. But we have this and it seems to paint a, a slightly stark picture. So, Richard, you know, what is this all about? The census seems to show serious hollowing out in London's city centre. Uh, these areas which have been the focus of billions of pounds of property speculation over the past decade seem to have shrunk the most, whereas outer London areas, which have historically been poorer, uh, have been at the sharp end of austerity cuts and suffer other sorts of sort of forms of deprivation, have seen the biggest population increases. It, this is proof that the post-2008 property rush has ultimately been bad for the city centre, isn't it? This is population shrinking, prices rising. These are not the urban qualities we want from London, are they? And no, they're absolutely not. And that's why we are trying to remain in the city centres, serving the communities that we have. Everyone needs people to run hospitals, to to deliveries, all of the, all of the, the jobs that make everyone else work. And the only way you can do that is by being in the city centre and providing good quality, low-cost housing within the centre. And that's what Peabody was set up to do. Mm. Um, so there are a lot of economic reasons why people, have, why in the more expensive places, uh, people have been able to move out. Huge, huge growth in asset prices enables you to fund alternative lifestyles. But... That's what, not what people is about. That's not what we've been set up to do. So we will make sure that we keep investing into our city centres and making them more diverse, making them a better communities so that they can self-fund themselves, so that they can grow, because that's what we want to have. We want to have dynamic communities in the centre of London that keep London alive. Smith, these, these early census results, they seem to be sending quite a worrying message about sustainability, uh, we know that living in a dense city centre uh, is more sustainable in many ways than living in a sort of suburban, low-density, outer city uh, situation. And yet what seems to be happening is that more and more people are being pushed out of those dense cores into this more suburban lifestyle where it's much harder to make walking or cycling or public transport a kind of viable, low-carbon lifestyle option. So, you know, do you th see this hollowing out of London's city centre uh, as making tackling climate change even harder. Yeah, I mean, the thing that really frightened me about seeing these results, which, you know, again, not super surprising, because, you know, you look at Kensington and Chelsea, okay, so 9.6% decrease in population. Kensington and Chelsea has 
10% of its homes are second homes. Then you look at the other end in Box, Barking and Dagenham, 17.7% increase, number of second homes, 0.1%. Like, this is also, obviously, the census was taken in 2021. A lot of people weren't in their normal homes um, or where they might normally be living. So in some ways, this is also a combination of how many people actually have the choice, have the opportunity to go and live somewhere else if they can. So it's, it's mixing those two things up. But the thing that's really frightening about it is that it just it highlights that problem of a unfair distribution of like our property wealth so that certain people have access to vast square meters and multiple residences and so on and then other people are kind of crammed into like too small and like shitty homes um, and we are trying to tackle the sustainability crisis at the same time as trying to tackle this social crisis um, and we're trying to tackle this sustainability crisis through like building more homes all the time, which exactly as you've said, Finn, is like isn't solving the problem. Building more homes has not reduced house prices because reducing house prices is absolutely not the policies that we're trying to like that the government is trying to put forward. And and this just it just really highlights that. And I think we really need to have a much more intelligent conversation about like house building targets like what are we actually trying to achieve here? are we really trying to build those more houses because that's going to bring make housing more affordable no we're, we're blatantly not we're really trying to do that in order to um, make sure that more more you know more people are able to live in um, and have more space well no not really because we're still having these policies that are supporting a few people living in vast sort of areas while other people are still like yeah really suffering so it's just it's, it's frustrating and it goes to your point earlier that these are not two separate problems that are pulling us in two different directions. They're the same problem um, and we need to tackle them together with sensible things like insulation. <laughs> well, and uh, speaking of sensible things, in, in potentially positive news, the acclaimed Sterling Prize-winning architecture company DRMM has been awarded funding to lead a major project to boost the use of a very sensible thing, timber in construction through, uh, you know, better post-occupancy studies and all sorts of good data. So according to the AJ, the London Bridge-based practice, which won the Stirling Prize um, in 2017 for its timber-constructed Hastings Pier, will work with uh, Edinburgh Napier University and the Quality, Found Quality of Life Foundation, which was weirdly set up by a DRMM co-founder, Sadie Morgan, uh, in a bid to create a reliable method of assessing the impact of timber on carbon emissions and of on quality of life, um, the project uh, is, is going to aim to kind of create an open source set of performance data from five existing timber buildings in the UK. This is going to include whole life carbon assessments, as well as interestingly kind of well-being indicators such as air quality and comparisons with other um, industry benchmarks in terms of construction materials. So the reports will be shared uh, outlining, outlining the findings as well as the methodologies behind how those uh, findings were reached in a bid to boost take up of timber construction, which so far struggles to kind of be really kind of embraced in the UK despite being very a very popular choice in other kind of comparable economies, comparable climates such as Austria. Uh, DRMM director Jonas Lenzer said, quote, currently findings from mass timber analysis come from piecemeal methodologies and assumptions. This makes comparisons between individual buildings and studies inconsistent. So he thinks that this is a, a kind of opportunity to redefine what good looks like in terms of timber construction that might lead to more take up uh, in the construction industry. Um, the chief executive of uh, this Dutch company built by nature has, has pledged to put £113,000 into the project. And Amanda, Amanda Sturgeon, who's their chief exec, said, 
uh, quote, with strong data and robust information, we can continue bolstering the case for mass timber adoption. So Smith, you're a kind of material science expert, qualified engineer, qualified architect, uh, head of director of sustainability and physics at Bureau Happold. Uh, why do we need significant, influential, well-funded pieces of, of research like this to persuade the industry to use more timber when the environmental benefits have been so apparent for so long? I mean, Austria has been building with timber at big scales for decades. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's kind of bizarre, isn't it? Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I really welcome this study and a big fan of Built by Nature. Bureau Happold are, are sort of um, taking part in work, um, collaborating with um other members of Built by Nature as well. Like it's it's a fantastic initiative, and I'd have nothing to say against it. But you're also right in what you're kind of alluding to there that it's it's sort of why do we have to try so hard? And like I think for all of the reasons that I've mentioned already, um, but also there was a report out last week. I don't know if that's a little bit too old news for this, but um, it's called "Is CLT a Potential Trojan Horse?" and it was published by the British Association of Reinforcement or Bar. Great name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And it's got this amazing cover that is a picture of a kind of replica Trojan horse in timber, obviously. And it's all like full of so much like weirdly spun stuff around how the, you know, CLT, it's just like there are too many industrial processes. Yeah. So hang on, um, just to kind of decode this for listeners who maybe don't know these acronyms, CLT is like a type of timber construction, cross-laminated timber. Yeah. And this, this lobbying firm... Bar is is like a concrete lobbying firm. That's what you're saying. So there's a concrete lobbying firm, sort of naysaying and bad mouthing timber. Why why might they be doing that? <laughs> there is a big kind of battle afoot in the construction industry around different industries, like putting forward like, no, we can save you from the climate change. No, we can save you from climate change. And you've kind of got to dig through all of the bunk. And it's like it's quite important that it's like good and important research because there are also a lot of things out there that are not necessarily like untrue they're talking about things like for example you know if you have like monocultural um forests that are really badly managed you know then that can have biodiversity um impacts and it absolutely can but it's just like it's really kind of apples and oranges and i think part of the part of the reason that we need to have this kind of research as well is because there are other people putting out other stuff that we have to fight with and it's like it's in a way it's ridiculous we know that we can build safely and sustainably and regeneratively in timber. We know you can do regenerative forestry. We've been doing it for bazillions of years. Um, but, yeah, we, we, ha we have to prove it um, as well. Mm. Um, you know, R Richard, you know, advising on sustainability at Peabody, uh, Peabody involved in some very big, very big projects, large-scale regeneration projects across the capital. Um, what role do you think timber construction should play in those projects or in London's future in general? Uh, will this research be enough to persuade Peabody to, to make more structures out of timber? Uh, well, Peabody predominantly builds very, very high. It's a, it's a factor of land prices and how, and how we can get density and house as many people as possible. So in the high-rise especially with everything that has happened recently, I think the risk dial is dialed way down on, on anything which is flammable. Uh, on the other side, what we're looking at at the moment and spending a lot of time is around whole, whole life carbon costing, going through that, making sure that when we're developing, what are we using, how we're using it and why we're using it. And that's something that is relatively new for us. So we're learning around it at the moment. We've got five schemes on at the moment where we're just trying to play through those ideas. 
Um, so I think that we will see something, but it's probably going to be two or three years down the line. We want to come up with something that we know we can replicate, we know that will last, we know that will stand the test of time. Um, so that's where we're trying to come from. Yes, I think timber's, timber's always been used in construction. It will always be used in construction. Uh, I think probably at the high-rise stuff at the moment, that's probably a step too far. Uh, Smith, I mean, maybe I'm an idiot here. You know, I'm not as qualified as either of the two of you, but like, it didn't seem like there was very much timber involved in the Grenfell fire, which I guess is sort of what we were all thinking about, that, that tragedy when we talk about the flammability of buildings. It seemed like that was a concrete structure. It seemed like it was a kind of aluminium with combustible insulation on the cl- in the cladding. Timber didn't seem to feature at all in that tragedy. And yet, you know, Richard's 100% right that since that fire, somehow timber has been, uh, the the risk dial around timber has has been changed and people talk about that, uh, that material timber, as if that was somehow part of the problem or as if that was, um, it's a risky material. As As a kind of building physicist, building engineer, is there a kind of clear answer on this? Is timber a sort of a, a flammable, risky material or, or not? So you can absolutely design a timber building, even a pretty tall timber building, um, safely um, so that it's you're not going to have a repeat of that tragedy. You can absolutely do that. And we are actually currently working on a project with War Thistleton Architects and others to prove that and to also collaborate with people like insurers and, um, you know, the like different kinds of industry associations and so on. Um, in order to sort of come together and say, like, okay, if these are the details that we use, if this is the fire engineering principles that we use, if these are the kind of insurance principles that we use, then you, can we build this? Because we want to make sure that we're kind of collectively comfortable with collectively managing those risks and ad- addressing the the kind of the concerns, the very very real concerns that, that should not be downplayed, but at the same time showing and you know proving that we can we do have the technical. Uh, we have the technical solutions to prevent those, that tragedy from happening in a timber building. It's it's possible. Obviously, it has to be designed properly, and all the systems have to be in place. But it's absolutely possible. And we just we need to prove it, and we need, yeah, developers as well to kind of help take that risk. And I mean, one of the things that we're doing at the moment, it's sort of interesting in the under the heading of stewardship, and you're sort of saying 160 years as well. It's like when we're working on master plans where the build out's going to be, you know, like 10, 15, 20 years time. Some of those buildings. What the, what the conversation that we're having all the time at the moment, and I've had it like at least twice today in different like meetings with clients, it's like, how can we make sure we don't design out timber? Make sure that if this building's going to be built in 15, 20 years, that we can potentially design it with timber once these sort of this temporary legislative context and those challenges are overcome, which we are, you know, confident they will be. How can we make sure that we're not like locking ourselves into a kind of very carbon intensive construction industry in the future? Our final story is that the fate of Foster and Partners' former City Hall building next to Tower Bridge is hanging in the balance after Culture Secretary at the time of recording, Nadine Dorris, has refused to issue a certificate of immunity from listing uh, the building. This is according to the AJ, and apparently... um, uh, So the building was home to the Greater London Authority, the GLA, until last December when... uh, London's government moved to the Wilkinson Air designed former Crystal Building next to the Royal Victoria Dock, which has recently been revamped by Architecture 00 to act as our new uh, city hall. Um, and Dorries has denied the request from the 20, uh, from the building's owner, St. Martin's Property Group, which would have granted them a window uh, to potentially demolish the building. Uh, so she's denied that. So she's not necessarily saved it. 
but she sort of said she's not green letter demolition either. So uh, kind of heritage campaigners who like City Hall and think that it, it, it should remain or be, be converted to a new use, very pleased about this and have welcomed the decision. 20th Century Society said it was, quote, leaving the door open for the building to be uh, considered again for listing in the future. Um, elsewhere in the capital, another iconic building has uh, once again become embroiled <laughs> in a sort of demolition versus retrofit debate. Uh, this is uh, late, late last month. The community secretary at the time of recording, Michael Gove, uh, called in, uh, so sort of demanded to take a look at the Pilbrow and Partners' plans to bulldoze and rebuild Marks and Spencer's famous store at Marble Arch. Uh, it was a move that was partly prompted by a letter organised by a campaign group called Save Britain's Heritage, um, and it urged lower carbon options to be considered instead of demolishing this building and, and rebuilding it. Uh, and then meanwhile, uh, in fact, as we discussed on the London last week, Richard Rogers's grade one listed masterpiece, Lloyds of London, um, a sort of insurance brokering type of building, is reportedly being considered for a new use uh, other than offices for insurers as a hotel. So there's sort of a lot going on in the world of do we list it, do we convert it, do we retrofit it, do we knock it down type debates. Uh, and Smith, I, I, I kind of wanted your take on the City Hall thing. Um, it was completed in 2002, just 20 years ago, you know. Um, how on earth are we in the situation where it's already being considered for demolition and heritage campaigns are, are having to fight to retain a building that was literally built, you know, in, in very recent living memory? Um, and how do we, maybe the bigger question is, how do we sort of move away from a, a, an economy or a, a political situation where that's even possible, where it's even possible to be considering demolishing buildings just 20 years after they're built? <clears throat> Capitalism. Um, <laughs> No, I mean, look, I, I've, I've been in the building. I have not, I haven't studied the plans and the structure and so on, but I'm, I'm guessing it's probably still in pretty decent nick. I'm guessing that we really don't need to sort of demolish this building on account of it being, uh, yeah, kind of inhabitable or unusable for, for any uses. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, it's wild, isn't it? It's like, because the, the thing that drives a decision about um, property and land so, so much isn't to do with the... The value of what's there it's to do with the the value that you could create or extract from that little portion of land and it's things like that and decisions like that that are obviously uh you know structurally allowed that make it then very difficult for you know people like Peabody to try and create homes on a similar kind of footprint I, I will say I think it's really good that we are having a more a better conversation about demolition in this industry at the moment like and and also it's really good to see that that's getting out into more of the mainstream media as well that it's not just architects and engineers kind of talking to each other about whether or not a building should be demolished a lot more people are getting involved that's that's great it's kind of a little bit little bit more democratic um but um we've still got we've still got a long way to go i think and i think just to also to pick up on your your point about whole life carbon it's really really important that we're measuring the whole life carbon impacts of these things but we, we also have to all become a little bit more literate on what those calculations means. You can still hide all manner of sins behind what looks like quite a good kind of carbon intensity. You know, just to give you, we, we talk about the, the kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalent per square metre. So that means if you build exactly the same building but make it bigger, it makes it look better. So like this, this, there's creative accounting, creative carbon accounting going on as well. So I think we have to kind of keep 
keep paying attention to the actual principles of what's happening here. And it's like, is this a building that is still useful um, or is it a building that is you know, dangerous and problematic and actually you could make better use of those resources in that land and just kind of have the conversation on that level. And that's also much more accessible. So, Richard, this this week, FT architect critic Edwin Heathcote, friend of the show, been on the show before, a bunch of times possibly, uh, published an article pointing out the the kind of, uh, compared to these kind of buildings that are getting knocked down after 20 years, the surprising endurance of Georgian terraced houses, you know, which, as we all know, were built as kind of nice pads for the rich in the past, but 300 years later have been converted into offices, to schools, to nurseries, even an architecture school. Um, so Heathcote is kind of making the case for loose-fit architecture that can evolve with the times, you keep the building the same, but the interiors flex and change as the use of that building changes. Um, what do you make of this term, loose-fit architecture, and how could it be more incorporated into London's fabric today? I think the loose fit is probably a reimagining of something that we did 100 years ago. We looked at our buildings, they moved with us, they developed with us as we needed to. My house has had three bedrooms, it's got four bedrooms at the moment. We just change it as we need to. And it's part, it's because it's part of the locality, part of the community that, that we live in. You just do that. You did. You never sort of walked around and said, "Well, we'll, we'll knock that one down, and then I'm going to rebuild that for 30 years, and we'll we'll see you later. See what see what the next person wants to do." And that's what we've been trying to do. I mean, if you looked at one of our estates, we previously it just had you had a room with a wash house at the end and maybe a kitchen. Now then, we remodelled that into uh, individual flats. Next thing we'll be doing is be retrofitting those to make them uh, more energy efficient. They move with the times, they change with the times, but also it helps, especially somewhere like London, the history of London, you can't keep knocking down things. There's there's no, nothing to hang the culture off mm. if you keep on doing that. And so that's why it concerns me quite a lot when you see people try and just knock down something that's 20 years old, especially something that's, that's relatively iconic. But equally, I don't think that least fit is necessarily... A new idea. It's just been trying to rebranded slightly, but what what we're looking for are principles of light and space. That's what, and then after that, you can move things around within that. So um, I'm I'm all for it in whatever way it's called. Um, it's been most of my career has been knocking buildings around and keeping them, retaining them, and, and moving them around. So that's what I want to do. And from a sustainability point of view, it makes complete sense. Fantastic. Look, we, we end each show with a kind of uh, look at kind of cultural events that are happening in London that listeners might be interested in. Um, some really good ones with a kind of ecological focus this week. Uh, Bureau Happold have somehow contributed to this show at the Barbican. Smith, I don't know if you can tell us about this, but it, the show is o- open now and it runs until the 29th of August. Very briefly, can you kind of tell listeners what that show is and whether they should go and see it? They should absolutely go and see it. Um, It's on at the Curve Gallery in the Barbican. um, And the whole whole exhibition is called Our Time on Earth. And Bureau Happold um, contributed to an aspect of it called the Symbiocene, where we worked with three indigenous communities to envision what uh, city living could be like in 2040, hybridising indigenous technologies with conventional engineering. Um, Something I'm, I'm particularly excited about. This Saturday is the 50th birthday of uh, Erna Goldfinger's Trellick Tower, um, you know, extremely beautiful, uh, brutalist building in the west of London, North Kensington, um, uh, from 12 until 8 p.m. on Saturday. Open City are involved. We're going to be doing free tours 
with the residents of Trellick Tower. So if, you, if you've always like, seen Trellick Tower on the skyline or on the, the, the railway to Bristol from Paddington, come along, come on a tour, come and meet some of the residents, explore the building. Uh, there's an amazing community. It's called the Cheltenham Estate that Trellick's part of. Um, and we've got some of the uh, like original architects who worked with Goldfinger are going to be there. There's going to be music and stalls and food. Uh, the community is currently involved in a big campaign <laughs> to try and stop a big development that will bisect that council estate. Um, so that, I'm sure, will be kind of part of the flavour of the event, but I'd recommend that. Um, also, our friends at the Architecture Foundation have created a new podcast series. It's called Power and Public Space. Uh, it's a series of conversations particularly about... Um, about public space and its relationship to social power with a kind of mix of artists and academics and, and architects, classic AF, you know, if, if, if you like the intersection of art, academia and architecture, then you'll like this, um, like this podcast. Uh, so I think their first story, one of their stories is about Dalston Eastern Curve Garden, uh, which is a project, uh, uh, you know, in, in East London, very beautiful, very admirable. Um, and that, that, that podcast series is live now. Uh, and I'm sure if you go on the AF, Twitter or Instagram, you can track that down. Um, Richard, anything you've seen, anything you want to plug for our, our listeners to get to this week? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, certainly going to the exhibition at the John Soane Museum is the thing that I would be looking for. My father is a big fan of it and he's been desperate to try and get me around to have a look at it and to look at the sarcophagus, which I think is in the, in the basement there. So uh, I've, so far I've sort of held him off, but I think maybe this is the time to go. You've never been to the Soane Museum at no. all? Oh, my God. I oh, know you absolutely <laughs> have to go. Um, fantastic. Smith, Richard, it's been a, a huge pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us at Bureau. Um, where can our listeners track you down? Are you on social media? Do you tweet? Do you Instagram? Are you TikToking? What's your preferred handle? I'm on Twitter at Smith Mordak, or one word. Richard? <laughs> absolutely not. Impossible to find. He's <laughs> fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining the show, and I hope you can come again soon. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 